Hello, this is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, and today we'll be mapping weight loss on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is regarded as one of the most influential medical doctors in the UK and wants to change how medicine will be practiced for years to come. His mission is to help 100 million people around the globe live better lives. He hosts the most listened to health podcast in the UK and Europe, Feel Better, Live More, which regularly tops the Apple podcast charts and is listened to by over 2 million people every single month. Each of his four books have been Sunday Times bestsellers, including his latest, Feel Great, Lose Weight, which is published in the USA and Canada March 30th, 2021, and which we will link to in the show notes. Dr. Chatterjee hosts his own wellness show in BBC Radio 2 and regularly appears on BBC News and television and has been featured in numerous international publications, including The New York Times, Forbes, The Guardian and Vogue, and his TED Talk, How to Make Disease Disappear, has been viewed over three million times. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge that today's topic is not only hot, but also controversial and complicated. Weight loss is not something that every body needs or should be concerned about. As a coach or clinician, please tap into the why behind any pursuit for weight loss and check your own biases and preconceived ideas about food, diet, weight loss, body size, and shape as well as doing comprehensive health histories and assessments before having conversations with clients or patients about their weight or the topic of weight loss. Dr. Chatterjee, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Andrea, thanks for having me. I've been waiting a long time to talk to you and I'm super excited. And we're talking today about the hot topic of weight loss. And it's going to be a great opportunity for us to really think into the matrix and root causes of weight gain or weight loss resistance. But I want to start us off by talking about food. I love 
that you take a what, why, when, where, how approach to food. I often like to think of it as quality, quantity, timing, and diversity. Can you speak into some of that what, why, when, where, how as it relates to food and weight loss? Yeah, I mean, I think weight loss is something that is very much misunderstood in society. I think it's misunderstood sometimes even within healthcare. I think we overly focus on one or two areas. And the truth is, Mm. is that like with most things, you've got to take a rounded approach. You've got to take a holistic approach. So we know food's important for weight loss. Of course, everyone is sort of aware of that. But when we think about food, people are really only talking about what we eat. And of course, that's important. You know, we know that what you eat, the quality of the food you eat can determine how much you eat. It can have an impact on your hormones, can have an impact on, you know, things like hunger, satiety, and all kinds of other behaviors. But there's other areas to think about as well. So why we eat is something I'm really, really Mm. passionate about. And it's, you know, I think any real life clinician really has been in that position where actually they've tried to address what someone should eat. And that patient or client has tried and they've gone away and they've had some change and some benefits, but then they come back and actually they've sort of slipped back into old habits sometimes. And I think why we eat is so, so important. So when I say why, I talk about, you know, emotions, for example. It's something that I don't think we think about enough. And the way I describe it in the book is I say that, you know, we used to eat to fill a hole in our stomachs. Now we often eat to fill a hole in our hearts. You know, when we're lonely, we eat. When we're bored, we eat. When we're stressed out, we eat. And, you know, let's just talk about stress for one second because we're actually living in very stressful times at the moment. And if you look at the research, it suggests around 80% of us change our eating behavior in response to stress. Hmm. 45% of us also eat more in relation to stress, 35% of us eat less. Interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. And then that really explains why in these stressful times, so many people have put on weight. You know, half the population, nearly half, respond to stress by eating more. So if that's your client, or if that's you individually as a practitioner, if stress is driving your eating intake, Is it a new diet you need or is it better strategies managing stress? And so, you know, once we start to think more holistically, we start to understand that there's various inputs here that we as practitioners can start to address with our clients, with our patients to help them really understand what's going on and engage with the process. But there's other things as well, you know, still thinking about why we eat. Let's talk about sleep for a minute. Right. For some of my patients, The way I got them to lose excess weight sustainably and not just in the short term, in the medium term and long term was to focus on their sleep rather than focusing on their diet. Because, you know, studies have shown us that if you're sleeping, let's say, five and a half hours a night compared to eight hours a night, well, you'll eat on average 22% more calories the following day. So just think about that five nights of only sleeping that amount means you could be eating a whole extra day's worth of calories just from not sleeping. So if you, you know, increase your sleep quality and quantity, if that's relevant for you, often you can start to lose weight and improve your health without even trying. Why is that? 
you know, many of the practitioners will know that, you know, when you haven't slept well, ghrelin, your hunger hormone goes up, right? So you feel hungrier. Uh, your satiety hormones go down, so you never feel full. Your amygdala, the emotional part of your brain, is more emotionally reactive. So you find it harder to say no and resist temptation. You find it harder to, you know, engage in your relationships. I was reading a study last week showing that actually when we haven't slept well, we have decreased empathy, right? That's so mm. fascinating. So, you know, weight loss has been about what are you eating? How many calories are you eating? How many calories are you burning? Now, look, at its core, you know, yes, you need to be burning off more calories than you take in. That's absolutely true. But actually, is it practical? Does it work in real life for most people? And it's kind of like, I don't find it that helpful with my patients. Of course, if people do find it helpful, I'm not trying to say change what you're doing, but I've never found it that helpful. So we can talk about emotional eating, we can talk about sleep, but even movement, right? Movement is something yes. that we talk about a lot when it comes to weight loss. But there's some really interesting research from Herman Ponser. And it really is, I think, changing the way many of us view movement's role in weight loss. So he has done a lot of work studying the calorie expenditure of the Hadza, this uh, modern hunter-gatherer tribe in Africa. And this tribe are a lot more active than we are. Okay, so the, the average uh, Westerner is sedentary, sat behind a desk for most of the day, let's say. These hunter-gatherers are moving throughout the day. But you know what? The amount of calories they burn is roughly the same as the amount of calories we burn. Mm. This is very new information for a lot of people. And it's, you know, this idea that if we go for a run and burn off 400 calories, it's this idea that's been hammered home that that is additive. So those 400 calories just get added on to your expenditure. So if you were burning off 2,004, you're now burning off 2,400. But we know that's not true. Like we are complex systems. So if we, yes. if we burn off more energy um, from vigorous exercise, we will start to compensate in other areas. So we might downgrade how much we fidget and move around uh, the processes that we call NEAT, non-exercise activated thermogenesis. And we can compensate in other areas because your body wants to roughly burn off the same amount of calories every single day. So the question then is, can you lose any weight without moving? Mm. Yeah, you absolutely can. Would I recommend it? Absolutely not. And the reason is, is because we need to move. Movement is fundamental to who we are, but I don't want people to focus on movement as a way of burning off calories. I want people to focus on movement to make them feel good, right? Movement is the fastest way to improve your self-esteem, how you know your self-worth. It's what I call the ripple effects. You know, yeah. moving a little bit regularly ripples into other areas of your life. And so I want people to move when they're on a weight loss journey, but I want them to move to help boost their mental well-being, their mental health, not to necessarily burn off more calories. And then it's all circular. I love how what you're talking to speaks into the complexity of human biology and also the simplicity of what we do and what we do with our clients and patients. I always say that dietary change is not a handout, right? We can't just give somebody a handout. And whether it's a caloric restriction 
or it's a food restriction, which tends to be the trend these days, it doesn't necessarily work because when we go beyond the what, there are other reasons. When you look at the why people eat, you talked about the mental health arena. Are there physiological reasons that uh, infuse the why somebody might be eating during times of stress? You talked about with lack of sleep, but why and what we then choose to eat in those instances, like blood sugar imbalances or other microbes or fungal infections that might actually be infusing the situation as well at the roots? Yeah, there's all kinds of different things that could be contributing. I don't think we know the exact mechanisms. I saw an interesting paper back in 2016. Essentially, it was, it was suggesting that during periods of stress, we actually are driven to eat more because of some sort of biochemical changes in the brain. And potentially, it may also be why when we eat the same amount of calories, when we're under stress, we may actually store more of them mm. as fat. I don't think we've got a clear cut answer there yet to be really clear, but I think it's just important to understand we're always learning new things in biology, new mechanisms. And if I'm honest, Andrea, I find the more people you see, the more what the new science tends to do is just back up. So true. We've seen in clinical practice, we, we, we actually get, so I find it very humbling as a clinician to go, oh, the more science I learn, it just backs up what I've actually seen in tens of thousands of patients. So I think that's something that's worth thinking about. So I think when you talk about the biochemical changes in general, I think a lot of the foods that we're eating these days are also driving increased food intake. A lot of us don't realize just how powerful those signals are. So, you know, these foods that in the, in the new book I call blissy foods, these foods that have been created mm. by food manufacturers with the perfect combination of fat, sugar, and salt to really basically push up dopamine in the body. Dopamine is a very, very powerful hormone. Uh, dopamine helps to teach us certain behaviors. It helps us to repeat certain behaviors. So if you have had lots of blissy foods in your life, and blissy foods tend to be exceptionally high in calories, they push up levels of dopamine. So you eat those foods, dopamine goes up. But if you keep doing this week after week, month after month, year after year, well, dopamine starts to spike in your body even before you've eaten it, even at the smell of the food, the sight of the food, which is why some of my patients actually, and this is before the pandemic, I remember one patient in particular, she wanted to eat well. She tried so, so hard, but she'd drive home from work and she'd drive home, the, the route home, she'd have to go through a roundabout and there was a fast food restaurant at that roundabout and she would smell those very tempting flavors. <laughs> And she felt like a failure. She, she came and right. said, Dr. I'm trying, but you know, sometimes I leave work at 7 p.m. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. And I just can't resist. And when I explained to her what was going on, I told her about dopamine. And I said what it's doing. It's actually her biology is changing. And that is really making it very hard for her to resist food. I said, for you, you know what? Is there an alternative route that you can drive home? And she said, yeah, it will take me 10 minutes longer. And I said, well, you know what? I think in the short term, this may really help you because you're trying your best. And I think that drive home is actually like your Achilles heel. So she did this for a few weeks and months. She drove home. 
a different route. And that's all she had to do because then she'd get home, she'd have a home-cooked meal, she wasn't being tempted. And again, different people require different approaches. I know your audience know that, Andrea. Well, they don't always do it though. You know, this is the thing. Like, I think we all get seduced by the newer science or the newer diet, or is it keto or what do you have to do to lose weight? And I think what you're speaking into is so important. How do we find out the little movements in somebody's day that are contributing to that? In that same situation, Dr. Chatterjee, I would do with clients, I would have them back it up and find the time where the hunger hit and set the alarm on their phone and have a snack at work that they could eat so that the hunger wasn't so high when they went that road home and also found that diversion. Again, different people need different things to be a helpful diversion from the seduction of the smell. So we all know it, but I don't know that we practice it as clinicians. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. We all need, myself included, it's always nice to have reminders or hear podcasts or interviews with people where you just, you know, you hear something with a slightly different perspective, with a different voice, and it helps us reflect uh, on our own lives. I think it's important when we're talking about weight loss as well to think about how we eat, right? And I really, I'm very passionate about this because... You know, we could look at the French and there is this thing called the French paradox. You know, why is it that the French could apparently have, you know, full fat cheese and steak and red wine and apparently not suffer the same health consequences as we might do in other countries like in the UK or the US? And a lot of the research is on about what they're eating, what's the difference. But, you know, my hunch is that the real reason there is the way the way they eat, it's how they eat. So there's a very much, there's a culture in France that you stop for mealtimes. You know, mealtimes are sacrosanct. You don't multitask. You don't send emails whilst eating your healthy lunch. No, you stop. You put the laptop down. You sit. You've got a table set. You might have a glass of wine, but, and it it really speaks to stress in a different way, which is, you know, there's, there's obviously these two modes in the body, the stress states, when the sympathetic nervous system is uh, more active, then there's what I call the, the rest and relaxation state or thrive state, which is when your parasympathetic tone is higher. And, and we know we should be eating and digesting food optimally in that rest and relaxation states. But with the fast pace of modern life, many of us are so focused on what we eat, forget about how we eat. And again, I've got patients where I didn't change what they ate, I just changed how they ate. Mm. And this was about stopping, maybe having a, you know, I I talk about this. I I say that athletes have a ritual, don't they, to, you know, a a pre-game or a pre-workout ritual to get them into optimum performance for their sport. So a sprinter wouldn't just, you know, step out of bed and actually go onto the track and try and run fast. No, there'd be a warm up. you know, there'd be a series of things that they would do. And I say, well, we should be looking for high performance for eating. Yes. Even if it just takes one minute, we stop. Totally. Maybe maybe we do some, you know, one of my favorite breaths is a three, four, five breath. When you breathe in for three, you hold for four, breathe out for five. Maybe you do three or four rounds of three, four, five breathing. Really helps to switch off the sympathetic tone, promote parasympathetic, you know, tone in the body. Maybe say a quick word of thanks to whoever cooked the meal or a prayer, whatever, whatever fits with your beliefs and, and, and the yes. way you like to do things. And then sit down and eat. 
And we know from the science that eating whilst distracted means that some of us are going to eat more, not only at that meal, but at subsequent meals throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I love things like this because they're so simple yes. for us to influence. But if we're overly focused only on, is it keto, is it low carb, or is it vegan? We miss the big picture, which I think is so important for us all to think about. I really appreciate this conversation and we will link to the new book in the show notes. I think it's a great opportunity for anybody who is in the nutrition profession to lead group programs based on these areas of inquiry where conversation is happening and people are coming back into that grounded place around the what, why, when, where, and how. I have one final question for you around, wait, I have a lot of questions for you, but this one final one that I'll ask you today, Dr. Chatterjee. There's so much focus today on genes and what our genes tell us or what our polymorphisms tell us. Did you find that there were hunger genes, satiety genes, uh, storage genes that were getting in people's way of implementing these more lifestyle or epigenetic changes? Yeah, If I'm honest, I haven't found that. You know, I've not looked for it that much when I was writing the book. You know, I did go into the research. I did try and have a look for these things. And I I found some correlations. I found some things that could be interesting. But, you know, for me, it's always about thinking, is this going to be helpful? Is this going to be empowering that individual, whether it's the reader or the patient in front of me? And I think sometimes this sort of information, depending on how we deliver it, can be a bit discouraging and a bit off-putting for people. Agreed. And I think we have to be really, really careful. I I will hold my hands up and say I'm not an expert in genetics. So uh, I certainly, you know, want to be totally transparent about that. I have definitely seen some links, but nothing that has convinced me to play a huge part in my practice. I feel that you can always help somebody lose weight in a way that is responsible and sustainable for them once you help them find the right approach for them. And I think there's plenty that we can already influence. And I find in my practice, that's what I focus on. I haven't really gone down the genetic route much yet, but I'm sure many of your listeners will have done. And I very much look forward to learning more about that in the coming months and years. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I also think it's a good reminder that we can't get stuck there, that there's so much more we can do to have some influence. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chatterjee. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode by email, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.
www.thepurposeofthe.com. 